Aloha everyone, I'm your host, Christina Laney Mitri, and welcome to Smart Living Hawaii's podcast, where we discuss smart homes and technology, sustainability, healthy lifestyles, and smart business. Today, we will have a talk story with Dr. Elizabeth Satoris as we wrap our minds around the work she has accomplished in her career thus far and hopefully dive into some of the hurdles we are facing with our sustainable initiatives and perhaps some solutions. Aloha, Dr. Elizabeth Satoris. Thank you for taking the time to do this podcast with me. Aloha to you, Christina. I'm delighted to be here with you. Thank you. Before we begin, I would like to introduce you with your brief bio. And really quickly, she is an internationally known as a dynamic speaker, an evolution biologist, a futurist, professor, author, and consultant on living systems design. She also uh, shows the relevance of biological systems to organizational design in business, government, and globalization. She is a fellow of the World Business Academy and advisor to ethicalmarkets.com and the master in business, master's in business program at Schumacher College, also affiliated with the Bainbridge Graduate Institute's MBA program for sustainable business. So I know that you're also doing work at Chaminade. Um, yes. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about that as well. I'm a professor in residence in the business school at Chaminade University here in Honolulu. And how long have you been with them? And I've been with them for uh, about three and a half years now. Awesome. And you have also done uh, podcasts or videos with uh, Kumu Ramsey Tom. Yes. Uh, Kumu Ramsey and I and the dean of the business school and another wonderful Hawaiian elder, uh, Kawila Clark, who's no longer with us in body, <laughs> oh. uh, the four of us together designed a new concentration of MBA courses that we call Island Economies. And the idea is to be informed by traditional Hawaiian values and practices as we look to the future of our island economies here. Awesome. And that, I know there are some, how many people do you usually have in the program at one time? Well, the, the MBA program has quite a few students, but the class, uh, graduate classes tend to be small classes that range as low as six people up to maybe 20, 21 people. Okay, and how that's, I'm excited to learn more on that, but maybe that will be another podcast. <laughs> but I, what I would like to do is dive into, if you can give me in a short version, I guess I would say, of evolution biology and what that really means, because I think most of our listeners are maybe new to sustainability. Some of them are new to um, a lot of that's what's going on. So I usually have to uh, turn everything that is written a certain way or said a certain way into a way that it may be layman's terms. <laughs> so maybe if you can do that with your uh, explanation of evolution biology, um, that kind of dives into the biology of cooperation and the maturation cycle. That would help because right now, sure. most people listening probably have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, being a, a student of evolution of planet Earth over time, the Earth is about 4 billion years old. 
and it has had a progressive evolution during all of that time in the biological world that we know of as the plants and animals and funguses, the bacteria and all of those creatures of the planet, with humans as one of the most recent species on the planet. So I actually am a futurist, but in order to determine where we can go to make the kind of future we dream of, you need to know something about where you've come from. So I call myself a deep pastist, looking into living systems of Earth over four billion years trajectory so that we can see, so where is it possible to go from here, given that past? So I'm a deep pastist in order to be a good futurist. Okay. And I came into the business world because I realized at some point that nature has always done economics. If we look at, you know, what is an economy? And if you think of an economy as the acquisition of resources, their transformation into something useful or edible, their distribution, their consumption, and then the disposal of the waste, what you can't use, then you see that humans have a linear economy where we go from resources to dumping in a linear way while nature does a circular economy in which everything is always recycled, where one species waste is another species food, so that we can see more about why the planet has been so sustainable for so long, while our human economy is getting itself deeper and deeper into trouble. That's right. (laughs) So if you can, I guess... Where you're tying in the part that's interesting to me is that you're tying in um, the biology, I guess, with actual human, you know, how we're evolving and what we're evolving, almost like our civilization and how we are becoming and what we're doing to the environment. Can you explain that maturation cycle for, Mm -hmm. for people? Yeah, my, my first main book was, uh, um, Earth Dance, Living Systems in Evolution, and that was the story of Earth's evolution, the biological evolution over time up to humans, and then how humans throughout our history have seen ourselves in relationship to nature. How did we conceive of nature? Uh, The current economy has tended to see nature just as a set of resources for human use, and therefore we've just taken more and more without giving back. Many earlier indigenous cultures, and some of which survive to some degree at least uh, to the present, uh, were so close to nature because they had not built a whole technological society that kind of insulates us from the natural world in many ways. Uh, they were more careful about giving back to nature for what you took from it and regarding it as sacred. While in our culture, we, we made a big division between religion and science, and the economics was presumably a science. It actually isn't, but, <laughs> but we think of it as something we really understand and know about. And... and um, We have a a lot of thinking to do about what kind of an economy have humans built? Why did we build a linear take-and-dump society rather than a what many people call now cradle-to-grave production, where from the beginning of production you have to think about recycling the product afterwards? 
if you can't consume it totally. Yeah, so I know I was reading in your article, or one of your articles, because you are, um, you have a lot of different things that you've published, but one of them was talking about the cycle and uh, where we're all at, I guess. And so I was very intrigued to hear the part of cooperation and how we are now needing to get to that place. But if you can start with the earlier stages mm-hmm. of what this cycle is and how we've gotten or we're moving towards that, I guess. That yes, helps. sorry, I keep forgetting that you're asking me that question. Uh, yes, it is very important because, you see, most of us, if we know anything about evolution biology, have been taught the Darwinian theory of evolution which has been primarily about competition in a world of scarcity. And we haven't looked at the cooperative aspects of nature until when I went back to, I actually went off to live on Greek islands at one point in my life in the late 70s to see whether I could figure out evolution biology on my own because there was something wrong with what I had been taught. It was like I was outgrowing a suit that was too tight and I had to get beyond that model of, uh, of comp- competition and scarcity. And uh, not only did I discover that some other cultures do the opposite, that place the primary emphasis on cooperation in nature. Um, but I, So I figured out that both competition and cooperation were major parts of nature, and that it starts, the cycle starts, with an early phase where a species is trying to get traction. It has to establish itself. It has to claim some land, reproduce, as fast as it can, use up as many resources as it can in order to do that, and then it's established, that's not the end of the story. That's the end of the Darwinian story, and then everybody is competing with everybody else. But in truth, what happens is that species come to a tipping point where suddenly they get it by experimenting with some cooperative schemes that cooperation is way more energy efficient than competition is. And so they move into a mature level of organization where it's cheaper to feed your enemies than to kill them. That's my big line. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and it's true. You know, I, I was, uh, of course, active as a anti-war demonstrator and all that during back in the Vietnam War. And we pointed out then that it would have been cheaper to buy all of Vietnam and develop it for the people there than it was to blow it up and kill people. (laughs) You know, that warfare is stupid at this stage in our human uh, evolution, especially since we're facing such big crises, some of which are natural and some of which are our fault. And we have to get together and cooperate to see our way through this. The good news is because this maturation cycle has existed in nature from the earliest times when there were only bacteria on the planet, and they eventually, after that feisty, youthful, competitive phase, built the cells we're made of, the big nucleated cells. So in all of evolution, there are really only two basic kinds of cells bacterial cells and their big cooperatives that are nucleated cells. Uh, And then because they were new on the planet, 
when the bacteria first formed them, they had to, side by side with bacteria that still were free living rather than parts of these cooperatives, they went through another billion years of competition of the youthful cycle, part of the cycle. And then they got together and formed multi-celled creatures, which is what we are. And we have like 50 to 100 trillion of these cooperative, bacterial cooperative cells in our own bodies, and 10 times that many actual bacteria living in our guts and on our skins as healthy partners for us. And that's all new in science now to realize that very few bacteria can cause trouble, that most of them are our friends. Right? So uh, I think it's very exciting to know this cycle because it says nature's on our side. It's time for humanity to mature, to grow up, to wise up, and to make the better world that we all want, and we can do it. Yeah, and, and not spend two billion years doing it. <laughs> not spend. We don't have the leeway. <laughs> so now that we kind of understand um, how we're moving into this cooperative state, I think, which is where I feel I'm at here doing what I'm doing for hopefully Hawaii, is 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 the need for this cooperation. And... Uh, what I've noticed in the past nine months of really diving deep into the sustainable world here in Hawaii um, is that there are definitely different sectors for sustainable initiative that people are aggressively working on. They have the funding for and they're doing amazing work. Um, from there, I'm realizing that when I start diving deeper in every sector, they're very siloed. Um, and they're doing a lot of good stuff and a lot within their own sectors, but they're not collaborating with each other. They're not cooperating with each other. And I, I, mean, I don't mean it in a way where they're doing it intentionally. I think they're just very hyper-focused on what they're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And they're um, not realizing that the person right next to them or the company right next to them could really help them out with what they're doing. So I would love to see if we can get a lot of the sustainable leaders in these different sectors to, to follow this cooperative so we can, like you said, be much more efficient, save our resources and our time and our money. Um, and with all of that said, that's just part of, I think, you know, what you're, you're kind of preaching yeah. to everybody about, yeah. you know, yeah. in a sense. Um, a couple other things that, um, now that everybody has a little bit more understanding of where you're, you're coming from um, and what you do for all of us in the past, I, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years? Has it been that long? <laughs> <laughs> um, if there's, there's a few other things, I guess, highlighted things that I would want you to touch on. And I think one of them is what, what is circular economy? Could you, mm -hmm. could you touch on that a little bit? I know it's been uh, hot buzzwords, right? A lot of these are, and then people don't really know what it is. Mm -hmm. So if, if you can enlighten us a little bit more on that, that would be helpful. There's a lot of events that are popping up and a lot of, you know, you start listening to other podcasts, like, it'd be nice to know um, your, mm -hmm. your take on it. Yes, the circular economy is what I was calling cradle to grave, where you, as you develop a product, you think about its entire life. You don't 
just take the resources from the ground, heat, beat, treat things, throw 99% of what you mined or dug out or cut from the land away, have a product, and then use it for a couple of years, if that long nowadays, and then dump it in a landfill. You know, that is a, that's a linear economy. It's like a lifetime that goes from birth to death, but there's no recycling. If you believe in something like reincarnation, we get recycled, right? <laughs> we go back to soul level and try out a different body. <laughs> but, the, but it's a kind of recycling of, of soul energy uh, into physical beings having a spiritual experience in the physical world, as, as some of us say. Um, anyway, that the circular economy is about can we develop an economy in which we recycle 100% of what we don't actually consume? That is the goal of a circular economy. And it's interesting that I was I had the privilege of being in China in 1973 at the end of the Cultural Revolution, before you were born, right? Um, and at that time, the Chinese government had a 100% recycling policy across all of China. If there was any waste material in industry that they didn't have a use for yet, there was a national contest for workers to try to figure out a way to reuse it. Wow, 1973. In 1973, and that's completely gone by the boards. And then they started importing our waste in addition to making their own. And now they've had the good sense to wake up and stop it. And California, I understand, is now trying to pass a bill that California cannot export any waste outside of California. No waste outside of the state. And that's exactly what we need to do here in Hawaii. No more shipping anything away. (laughs) That is waste. And I'd also like to see us get sustainable enough so that we could ban the import of any food that we can grow here. Make the jobs here, the clean green jobs of growing healthy natural food and and not don't import what you don't need to import. Get more efficient about these things. Right. right? I know. So that's the that's the circular economy that we want to develop an economy where in the first place we don't make toxic non recyclable materials like plastic. Mm-hmm. You know, before plastic there was celluloid. And celluloid was biodegradable and there are people now who are reinventing it. There's also this wonderful whole movement called biomimicry, which is looking to nature for materials, natural materials that can serve all of our industrial needs. So there are actually bacteria that manufacture plastic, and for a while the the Brits were making things out of them, but it it decomposed a little bit too too fast. So they have to work on making it last longer. But the, the most amazing materials are developed in nature and are recyclable from, like spider silk, for instance, is the strongest, most resilient material on earth. If we could scale it up to human use and make nets, you could catch jet planes in flight with it, uh, you know, even at their speed. And, uh, oh, all of the things like uh, shells, you know, the beautiful bioluminescent uh, creatures in the sea and the shells that are smooth and shiny. And how does nature make color? Nothing gets painted. 
You know, uh, I think a tenth of the cost of a new car is just the layers of paint on the outside. What if we could make the surfaces reflect whatever color we wanted it to reflect the way nature does in a flower? Flowers aren't painted. Why are they blue? Why is it that they absorb all of the rainbow colors except reject blue, which hits your eyes, so you see it as a blue flower? It's actually everything but blue. <laughs> That's amazing. So, you know, we can learn so much. Nature has four billion years of experience in, in developing these highly, highly sophisticated materials that are strong, that are resilient. A wasp nest is houses thousands of individuals in a paper shell that won't blow off the tree in a hurricane. Uh, what about those, you know, we're now copying the glues of nature for dental implants, for all kinds of things. So this is a very exciting whole new field. Imagine a Hawaii in which everything we manufacture here is made from natural materials that are recyclable and we don't have to waste any money on, on uh, you know, defense and things like that. <laughs> We're really free to build the kind of society that's inclusive, that doesn't throw anybody out and doesn't throw anything out hmm, without recycling. <laughs> so now that we have a better understanding of that, you, it's definitely something that a lot of big companies across the globe now are, I mean, it's really interesting to see where they're now having, you know, a CSO, a chief, you know, sustainable officer as their C-suite executives and mm -hmm. how um, they're having directors based on, you know, climate change and, and, and how they're going to be more sustainable for society and for to be part of this circular economy and what they have to do to give back if they're mm -hmm. taking, right? So, I just know that through time, more and more, you're, we're going to see this, and it's going to, whether they want to do it or not, it's probably going to be implemented. Um, and we hope that they understand the value of why they're doing it versus, oh, this is going to cost me an arm and a leg <laughs> just to do it, right? Um, so the other thing that I did see, um, which I did not know that you were somewhat related to, was the 100 Resilient Cities Initiative. So I do know that we are a part of it. I know very little. I know that um, we now have the uh, the Office. position, the mm -hmm. officer, right? Um, Josh Stanbro. And the office itself. And the office itself mm -hmm. within of climate the, and resilience. Within and our government, right? Mm -hmm. Which is nice because we are officially tying in government with... Uh, the sustainable initiative yes. and they are moving forward with it just mm -hmm. like they're moving forward with the rail like it's, mm -hmm. um, they are mm -hmm. full throttle doing what they're going to do and once it happens and it goes past a certain point um, you know it's just going to keep happening so you know I don't know where the funds are going to come from but hopefully we will get all of that together but if you could tell us a little bit more about the 100 resilient cities initiative mm -hmm. that would be helpful too. Yes, I was very excited about it when I first heard about it. It's the Rockefeller Institute set up this program where they had took applications from cities all over the world on how they would like to uh, work on two issues, their most chronic problem and resilience in the face of climate change. 
and Honolulu won in the third. They chose three cohorts of 33 each, uh, right, over three years and a 34. And we were in that last cohort chosen with our chronic problem being homelessness and then the resilience against climate change, the other thing to tackle. And what Rockefeller funds is just the chief resilience officer for a year or two years or something like that. And then the city, it's a city government, not a state government thing. Um, then, the, then the locals are supposed to take over the cost of this project. Does it look like that's going to happen? Because I know he's. this is, what, his second year now doing this? I think they're funding him for two years. It may be that his salary has gone over to the city government. Oh, I'm not okay. sure about that, okay. uh, how long they were funding the, the actual position. But the voters voted into place the Office of Sustainability and Resilience um, Whatever I think there are three words there in the, in the name of the office and sustainability. Yeah, yes. So we voted change. that we voted that office in, which means that the city is committed to uh, staffing that office. That's good. Okay, beyond Rockefeller, <laughs> he has a lot of yeah. stuff on his plate. <laughs> yes, and and I think that it's it's a wonderful initiative. Uh, there were a lot of different. You talked earlier about the silo effect. There are many people on the island, and I was hoping that there would be more cooperation among all those different groups, and maybe that is happening. At the beginning of this project, when it was finally taken up here, uh, there seemed to be some conflict. between. Well, they all were hoping to get some funding, I guess. But we have all these Sierra Club and, and ecology issues. We have the green uh, food movement. We have the Get Monsanto Out of Here movement <laughs> with its toxins. Uh, we have you know, climate change issues, we have fragile coastline issues, uh, and there, are, there have been people, and of course homelessness alone has 30 or 50 different churches and organizations trying to solve the problem. And siloing is a big problem, however, it's the first part of, the, of an evolutionary phase, is where individuals and individual organizations tackle specific problems. And then the next phase in that is when they recognize that they're strong, that they're stronger if they work together. <laughs> so we have to bundle them, you know, and get them in touch with each other. And sharing resources and sharing outreach with each other, really working together. Yeah, that's definitely something that I see. I, I mean, I'm passionate about trying to help everybody get there you know and yes, I know <laughs> I know we have Hawaii Green Growth and the work that they're doing um, and their you know their initiatives working with the state um, but at the same time you know there's just I just see so much it's everybody is just they are working so hard in their own in their own sectors so it's it's just there's nobody actually trying to orchestrate it because mm-hmm. they would go to that event or, or be a part of something or support something, but to have them also plan it or have them also take that extra initiative to do these extra things, I could see it. It's just they don't, their plates are full. So that's why mm-hmm. I feel like it needs to be a third party. There needs to be this yes. neutral, you know, platform that's helping 
all of it be facilitated, you know, and so that's that's what that's what I think I I'm love here to be doing. You know, I love what you're doing, Christina. I love that you are a business person with the kind of consciousness you have, with the kind of dream you have of of creating a better future. So tell me, what's your definition of a sustainable business? A sustainable business? Mm-hmm. How would you define a sustainable business? As in a sustainable business for any the, kind of what's well, a basic when definition? you think of sustainability it's just existing right and continuing to exist there you go but <laughs> real what does unsustainable mean that you die off <laughs> it means cannot last doesn't it so we have no choice but to try to build sustainable businesses if we want business to flourish. Yeah, and it's interesting, people that we talk to, the word sustainable is is subpar for what we want it to be. And I was talking to Pono Shem not too long ago, and he, you know, like most people in the sustainable world, don't prefer the word sustainable, but at the same time, it's the word we have acquired. So um, his word is prosperity. And I think that is a very nice example of what we should be doing, right? Everything, it's to prosper and to go further um, versus mm. just part, like Matt Lynch had mentioned yes. at the event, right? He said, yeah. if you were to say that your relationship with your wife is sustainable, then that would not be <laughs> taken boring. very... <laughs> it sounds boring. But if you say something about it being prosperous or growing and positive... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think I think that's maybe part of the reason why the, the name that I went for was Smart Living, because... Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's it is living and it's it's yes. encompassing all of that and and I hope it's a positive. I want it to be mm-hmm. having a positive feeling, mm-hmm. not a neutral feeling, but a positive. I like I like your term, <laughs> smart living. I would even say wise living, <laughs> we were, because I'm a little worried about you know smartphones and smartness, and now the smart five G and stuff. Right, smart Which, refrigerators. Thank you, thank you for that segue, <laughs> because I know you. I, I have heard you mention um, your take on five G. Um, I did have to look it up and see to what capacity and where we're at on this, and to hear the different sides. Um, of course, if you're on the AI side and the technology side, this is going to be an amazing, you know, new thing that's coming and everybody's going to be super excited about it. But I guess where we're also seeing is that there is no one looking on the other side. So could you just give a brief description of the yeah. 5G and where we're headed? I mean, you might know more, but then also some of your worries. Yes, well, the the Wi-Fi technology has gone through already four different iterations. You know, there's been 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G. 4G to 5G is a huge leap. It's a very, very big leap. And uh, it's going to put small, the equivalent of cell phone towers, but small ones on every other building, uh, if not every building. And, and the idea is you want to read every device in every home. Uh, recently, I don't know if you've ever watched, what's the new TV show about the Secretary of State, Madam Secretary? Oh, I haven't seen it. I think it. it's called. There was an incident uh, about two weeks ago where a terrorist organization 
uh, attacks her home, and suddenly the lights are flashing, the fridge is spitting out ice cubes, uh, you know, the, the TV is blinking on and off, the computer has gone wacky. And that how interesting, because someone who understood 5G wrote that show hmm. and was exposing the vulnerability in a way. So that's one of the vulnerability is to hackers that they can, if you, if any device is constantly reading the act, all of your activity, and we don't like being monitored that closely, but suddenly we're agreeing to, to have somebody else know even whether you need milk and on your shopping list or not, right? Are we grown-ups or not? Are all our decisions going to be made by algorithms? Are we all going to give up responsibility because it's automated by blockchain technologies and things like this? Uh, we're not thinking about what it is, and, and the medical research is being suppressed. There are about... 30% of the insects flying around in the air now than there were when I was a kid. And on a Sunday drive, you'd come home and the windshield would be plastered with bugs that you had to scrape off. And now you don't have a single bug smashed on your windshield anymore, even though we're driving faster and should be hitting more of them. Uh, they're gone from 30 years of cell phone towers, very likely had a big implication in killing them off. And when you kill the insects off, you kill the birds off, you affect the whole food chain. Uh, furthermore, there's a lot of evidence already that uh, that Wi-Fi just using cell phones is causing cancers, in, not in all people, but in some people. Some women getting them on the side of, you know, that they carried cell phones into bras made with actual phone pockets in them. Well. And men, you know, not don't put it too near your genitals. It can affect your sperm count and all this. So we know that there is a downside to our upsides. And we should be looking at them more carefully. Do we really need faster internet than we already have? Do we really want all the driverless cars on our roads? Are we really thinking about it? Are we thinking about what will be the effect of the extra radiation in your home that you will have no choice about? The smart meters, uh, all of these things give off radiation. And it's, a, and it's a kind of radiation that, because of the, the wave size, may well kill off the bees, and that would affect all of agriculture. So I think it's a danger that we're rushing into before we have evidence. Uh, and the companies are suppressing it. If you look at what insurance companies are saying to their shareholders, they're saying we're expecting big lawsuits from EMF damage. And most insurance companies will put disclaimers in saying we will not cover you for any EMFs or electromagnetic frequencies. Mm -hmm. You cannot put a claim on if you get cancer due to something like that. If your child's brain doesn't develop on schedule, why are the French banning uh, cell phones in schools, Wi-Fi in schools? Why is Germany considering banning all 5G? You know, everybody wants to progress and, and have the latest thing, but where this is being looked into carefully, it says, hang on a minute, <laughs> you know, <laughs> can we look at how, look at vaping. Now they have to stop the flavors and stuff because suddenly all the teenagers are addicted to vaping. I know, gosh, I can't um, stand We that. just got cigarettes banned and then we let the cigarette companies go into something else that's dangerous. 
So we need to look at what the effects are. We know now that we are having very bad effects on, on our whole world situation. We are, are drowning in plastics that aren't very recyclable. And, and even those that we can recycle, we're not doing enough of that. The oceans, if we, if the, we let the oceans die because we're messing up the food chain, I'm sorry, but land life is going to have a hard time too. Earth will survive. Whether we do or not is up to us. I know, that's Even true. if we're going into a hotter climate, we can adapt to it. But we're going to have to move uphill. You know, a little seawall on our canal is not going to stop a tsunami. And we have to expect tsunamis. Uh, do we really want to keep on building high-rises on fragile coastland? That, you know, look at Kaka'ako. It's... Uh, 30 years of, of incinerator ash and landfill from digging canals on an old crumbling coral reef. And nobody does combined weight impacts on all the proposed buildings. Different developers get their licenses, and nobody, you could, in an afternoon, calculate the weight of 20 extra buildings in Kaka'ako. You can calculate it empty and full of appliances and people. Uh, it can be done. I called Washington about this because I know that we our federal government has a department of, of um, fragile coastlands or part of NOAA or whatever it is in Washington. They never had thought of the, doing that. It's like the silos of activity. Hmm, They're all, each developer is independent. Mm -hmm. So we want things to last. We don't want those buildings to become the next coral reef. <laughs> <laughs> no, that wouldn't be good. Um, so thanks for explaining the 5G. Mm. I'm going to probably put a couple links up. And if you have a couple that you think are good uh, YouTubers for for mm -hmm. the 5G and you're interested, let me know or we'll yes, put it and on. and talk to politicians about this. Say, do your homework before you just jump into, oh, new jobs. Well, look, and that's what they say about Monsanto. We have to keep Monsanto here to test its toxic chemicals because it makes jobs. Molokai wouldn't survive without Monsanto. Now, you can't tell me that the same people working for Monsanto couldn't be doing organic farming. <laughs> you know? Right? I think that'll be an interesting time, I feel, if we all as a state can look at, I mean, farming is a whole nother issue. Mm. Um, and I think with as much as we import for food, um, we need to really consider what it is we're doing <laughs> so we can do it here and maybe not all of it's going to be on Oahu but maybe the outer islands I mean you know it's mm -hmm. it's an interesting concept that I feel we would all then have to not be siloed and then work together as a state and work together individually <laughs> you know what's what's really interesting if you look into evolution and human history and what's going on today the minute there's a disaster 95 to 99% of people jump into cooperative mm -hmm, mode, into right? mature mode. It's in us. It's in us evolutionarily as creatures. We know how to cooperate. But our, our current economic system has focused on competition and greed. 
And we want to rethink that. Your generation is rethinking that. You're saying, wait a minute, there's something wrong with making money the be-all and end-all of my life so that all I have to think about is how can I earn enough? I had one mentee who wrote a book uh, online over 10 years ago who, and the first question she asked was, why should we be born on a planet and then be told we have to earn our living on it? Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. These are the kinds of deep questions young people are asking, and that is so appropriate because we humans invented the system we're living under. And we can reinvent it. We can move into the mature mode. I love saying to young people, if you want to build a better world, it's not that hard. Look at all the things your elders are doing that you don't approve of and stop doing them. Don't do them anymore. If you decide in one generation you're not going to kill each other off, you'd rather cooperate to face climate change, war will be over. Yeah, that would be, that's true. So That would be a big help. I know we covered a lot, and I know there's so much more, but if you could think of two to three critical things that our Mm. state can focus on, like now, you know, really focus on, what would those things be and why? The best thing that's happening in Hawaii right now, I think, is the focus on clean energy. We're doing that pretty well. Uh, And we're looking at all the different kinds of energy, not just one kind, not just solar, not just hydrogen, but geothermal. We know that they all can be part of the mix and be clean and green. What I find missing here is what you're worried about, the siloing, the not talking to each other, and the not asking the deepest questions. So my greatest hope lies in the fact that Hawaii does have a strong community-oriented Hawaiian tradition of cooperation. No one was left out of the traditional Hawaiian society. There was no such thing as homelessness. And the, and the economy was based on the uh, apupua'a system where every farm went all the way from the highest ground uh, the, the Mauka side to the Makai shoreline so that it had access to the timber and to the fields that could be planted and to the seafood and stuff. So that was a kind of equitable way of making sure everyone had access to all resources on the islands. And so you could see the ways that economies could be set up in the, of course, they were all circular back then because there weren't any non-biodegradable things produced. Right. And we would need to go back to that. Look at our resources like we could be growing uh, bamboo. In three years, you can grow 18-foot timbers. Salt water can preserve them so that they don't rot. We could be building the most beautiful bamboo architecture higher up that fits into the landscape and stuff. I know the Philippines are doing that because it's their yeah. it's their resources, you know. It's yeah. interesting to see third world countries or other countries mm-hmm. that don't have the resources or the resources are just too expensive for them to obtain. Mm-hmm. So they are then out of necessity, they're yeah. creating and innovating some really neat things. Oh, absolutely. And that's the, the beauty is that we know how to do it. But why, when we have a brain that can be proactive, that can say, sooner or later, there's going to be a tsunami. 
and it's going to hit the whole shoreline of our island, right? Why do we wait until that tsunami happens before we all go and buy to a dig whole our bunch of water bottles? <laughs> Plastic water bottles. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my biggest question: is why can't we be proactive? The way I'm working on this now is is with uh, a little nonprofit called Tomorrow Makers, which you can see at tomorrowmakers.org. Okay. And what we want to do is develop gaming in which instead of building fake worlds online, you know, p- billion people are, are playing games all the I time know. on the planet. I have not and they're let learning, my daughter get involved in They're learning to collaborate to build fake imaginary worlds and blow each other up on in the process and stuff, when we could be taking all that talent and all that experience in collaboration to say, let's see, what can, what, future do we want to create here on this planet, given our real conditions of climate change, of the technological society we have now, what will last, what won't, how do we want to live in the future? Do we even want proper uh, land ownership to be part of our future, or is that inequitable from the get-go? Do we want to use a debt money system such as the one we're in, which we have known for 2,000 years is designed to concentrate wealth into fewer and fewer hands and leave more people impoverished? Or is there another kind of money system, or many, maybe a whole ecology of money systems that can interface the way blockchain is playing around with different currencies now? Uh, So your generation is really going back to very deep questions. And that's my last word would say, do that. Go back to the deepest questions Ask yourself, what could life be like on this planet? How can we all work together to face the very serious challenges? We're, we're navigating a perfect storm of crises at this mm-hmm. point. Right. But how did the navigators do it? How did the ancient Polynesian sailors do it? How did the Hokulea teach the world that you can sail without a compass if you know nature so well that you cannot be lost? And if we know nature that well, we can emulate it, we can copy it with the best, most sophisticated, beautiful kinds of recyclable technology. Have those dreams. Keep those dreams. Ask the deepest questions. Because you can do it. Well, that is that is such a good conclusion to our <laughs> podcast. Thank you, Dr. Satoris. That's all I have for you today, really. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast at www.smartlivinghi.com. Also follow us on Instagram at smart underscore living underscore Hawaii and like us on Facebook. Mahalo and until next time, live smart. Thank you.